podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Smart People Podcast. This is Chris Stem. And this is John Rojas. I got to say, guys, we are staying true to our name in this episode with a truly intelligent person. Somebody so much so that it was a little difficult to try and sound mildly intelligent myself. This week's guest has just listened to a little bit of his background before we talk about some other things. He graduated from MIT. He's a Rhodes Scholar a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. He earned his doctorate at Oxford, and now he teaches at Harvard, and he co-founded one of the, I don't know, most profitable startups ever. I don't know if ever, but it's just, I mean, it's a killer. It's a killer company. So we're going to get into that. But first, let's all shame John for not making it to the episode. Boo. Boo that man. Public shaming. John, why weren't you there to interview this magnificent gentleman? Well, I couldn't get out of work. We added this guy to our roster pretty late, and yeah, we did. It was a like a daytime interview, and I tried getting out of work, but couldn't do it. But that's gonna change soon. Let well, that's because that. that's because this was a guest we we had to get when he had a moment. Exactly. This week we interviewed Barry Nailbuff, and if some of you know, he is the co-founder of Honest Tea one of the best beverage companies in the world, in my opinion. They finally gave us tasty beverages with less sugar. And he kind of goes on to explain in this interview how they did it and where the idea came from. It's pretty interesting. His co-founder, Seth, was actually a student of his at Harvard. So really interesting story. So before we turn it over to Barry, John, why don't you tell him what they've won? Oh, man, that was corndog. <laughs> well, we promised we'd give away a few Amazon gift cards to people that were filling out our surveys on the website. Remember, you can still go over there, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash survey. And this week, we are giving away two $20 Amazon gift cards. The first one going to Kara Curtis, and the second one going to Dave Tremblay. So, Kara and Dave, congratulations. We'll get those in the mail to you soon and ask that you take a picture of yourself receiving them and blast it all over social media. As John mentioned, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash survey takes three minutes. We really appreciate it. We love the feedback we're getting. We're trying to make the show better because of it, and you can win some stuff. So, without further ado, let's turn it over to the co-founder of Honest Tea and the author of the most recent book, Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding, Barry Nailbuff. Thanks again so much for being on the show. I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, possibly, but I have to kind of gush about this because I was reading your bio and I noticed you're an MIT grad, a Rhodes Scholar, you got your PhD from Oxford, and you're a professor at Yale. Yeah, I and, can't hold a job. And that basically reads, I don't know, like the smartest man alive. I've been very fortunate. So it's uh, definitely uh, a tour of duty that I am uh, was a great education. I'm always curious, have you always just been a smart person? Have you always excelled in academia 
What's kind of been your background when it comes to your knowledge base? I'd say that I didn't necessarily do that well in junior high school and the like. Some areas, whether it be English and language, were not my forte. And if at MIT you would ask me who among my classmates would be the author of six books, I would have put myself as least likely to have been in that category. And if I had known, I would have taken more English classes for sure. On the other hand, mathematics is something that did come easily to me. And when I came to MIT, I thought it would be a major in math and maybe even become a, a mathematician, only discover what real math was all about and quickly realized, okay, uh, there's good in this MIT level of good, and I wasn't at the MIT level of good. What did you then go on to get your PhD in? Economics. And in fact, my undergraduate degree, uh, I, I finished the math degree, but it was really the last of that. And I went on to convert and really after my freshman year, took almost all economics rather than math courses. Were you always thinking, I want to become an entrepreneur, I want to start businesses, I want to understand how business works? Actually, there's a pretty funny story in this. When I graduated MIT, one of my closest friends is a fellow named Larry Hillebrand, and he went to work at Solomon Brothers, and he was in the research division. Uh, he did brilliantly there and got promoted to the trading floor and asked if I wanted a job in the research division. But I had just won a Rhodes Scholarship and so said, no, look, I'm going to go to study in Oxford. And he said, no problem. Uh, he then gets promoted to vice president at Solomon and asks if I want a job on the trading floor. And at this point, I just got a position at Harvard Society Fellows, and that was this fantastic opportunity to do three years of research at Harvard. I said, you know, can't possibly turn that down. He said, no problem. Uh, he gets promoted to be managing director, asks me three years later if I want to be vice president. At this point, I've gotten a job offer at Princeton to work with Joe Stiglitz, a future Nobel Prize winner and really one of my heroes. And how could I possibly turn that down? Meanwhile, I'm getting promoted faster than if I worked there myself. So this is uh, <laughs> all pretty good. And uh, I think Warren Buffett, who got involved with Solomon, said that Larry Hillebrand, who I think earned $25 million that year, uh, was the only person he thought wasn't overpaid. And unfortunately, I waited once too long. Larry ultimately left Solomon, became part of uh, LTCM, and actually may have been one of the causes of the financial meltdown and the collapse of LTCM. But I certainly uh, had some opportunities and decided I really liked the life of being a professor and uh, have stuck with it. Well, that's great. And it's allowed you to, I, I know you've now co-authored six books, I think it is. Is that right? Exactly. And most of them focus on business strategy. Business strategy, sometimes with applications to game theory. Okay. So game theory specifically, something that we haven't really touched on on the podcast, I think because it's above my pay grade, but let's talk about it a little bit. While we have one of the best in the business on the line, could you talk a little bit about game theory, what it is, and how it relates to business for us? Sure. Well, game theory is the science of strategy. So let me contrast it with engineering. When an engineer builds a bridge the bridge isn't going to fight back. So you think about tensile strength of steel, the load factors, but you don't have to think about what the other side is thinking. In contrast, if you're in a strategic environment, your success or failure is going to depend on what, how the other side is going to react. And you need to really put yourself in their shoes. So uh, if you want in the current environment and you, you think about Syria, why uh, did Assad uh, engage in chemical warfare? Was it that he thought he could get away with it? Or 
is it that his goal is to provoke us into attacking him? And depending on those two strategies uh, from his perspective would really influence what our response should be. We have to make sure that actually this wasn't his whole goal was to get us to attack him, uh, to generate sympathy, to generate resources from other allies. I'm not sure. The, the point of the game theory is that until you have a strong view on that, uh, you haven't really understood the game you're playing. I gotcha. So now how do you or how have you used that strategy uh, in business? I signed up to be an economist uh, when I got my PhD there. And I'd say that economic principles have been absolutely central to the foundation success of honesty. I mean, if you look at it, you've got a professor and a student, neither of whom have any business experience. We don't have a whole lot of money. Uh, and we're going up against the likes of Coke, Pepsi, Schweppes, 7-Up, Cadbury, Snapple. I mean, this is a competitive world, so it should have been a recipe for disaster. What allowed us to succeed? Well, passion. Seth is incredibly passionate. Uh, we had some good luck. And we also had economic theory on our side. And so here's an example of that. The most basic lesson of economics is declining marginal utility. So if you think this podcast is good in the first couple minutes, which it might have been, uh, it's probably going to get less and less good each, uh, each moment <laughs> thereafter. In other contexts, uh, sugar. So one teaspoon of sugar is great. It takes away the bitterness. Another adds a little bit of flavor. But every additional teaspoon of sugar you add doesn't get you the same bang for the buck. It's less and less valuable. Meanwhile, it adds the same amount of calories and the same amount of cost. And so economic theory says to me that the ideal amount of sugar should be at the point where it still has a high incremental value. And that's kind of the one, two teaspoon range, not the 10 or 12 teaspoon range. Now, please tell me that is how you came to determine the amount of sugar that went into each of the honest tea beverages, because there's no way. That is the way. That's incredible. I have to say, because I'm very passionate about sugar specifically. Um, I think it's one of the most harmful ingredients that's in our food these days. And I looked really quickly before we were talking and I noticed the Honest Tea Sweet Tea has 25 grams of sugar in 17 ounces. In comparison, Arizona Iced Tea Sweet Tea, 23 grams in 8 ounces. So basically double. Well, actually, you picked the sweetest tea that we have. And oh, I did that on purpose because that's uh, your sweet tea. Uh, so our typical teas uh, range from 17 to 34 calories. Uh, there are some with 2 grams of sugar. Essentially, I like to think that we're somewhere between a seventh and a third of what other people are providing. And there's even one of our teas which has on the back of it a curve showing the trade-off between taste and sugar. Here I'll take, I'll really scare off most of your listeners, but this is the Smart People podcast. It is. So if you go back to high school, you might remember your calculus, and I'm sure people can't believe I'm talking about this, but at a maximum, the derivative of a function is zero. Uh, and what that means is that a curve is always flat at the top. And so if you think about cutting back sugar from the place where you maximize taste, you give up almost nothing in terms of taste because the curve is flat, but the customer saves calories and we save the cost of ingredients. What that means is the optimal product is not the product which tastes the best. Wow. Yes, that is fairly mind-blowing. And you know why? Because to me... I never would be able to put the curve and all that behind it. But to me, I've always said, I want a tea. 
you know, I want a, a beverage and I want it to have a little flavor. But up until probably until Honest Tea kind of revolutionized the industry, it was this, these absurd amounts of sugar. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a scientific decision in my mind. I was just it was common okay. sense almost. Oh, good. OK, so one of a big fan of common sense. But here's the thing. <laughs> so I start with you in the same common sense position. But then I ask, is it me or is there some larger principle here? Oh. And so economic theory said, it's not just me who feels that way. It really, there's a larger principle which says, I'm right. And therefore, that gave me the extra confidence that we should go ahead. Now that makes sense. And that is actually a, an interesting way of talking to entrepreneurs out there saying, there are things you can do to test your theories before you just move forward. You have a th we had a theory. So instead of just saying, hey, world, uh, are you just leaving me out? You know, I, I'm kind of a consumer here and I don't see the product I like. It's there's a theory which says the market should be providing things for me. So did you use this same idea throughout running Honest Tea? Does it apply to things other than ingredients? It, for example, the way you market it or mission well, statement? It applies to several things, but... Let's be clear. This is about as important an aspect as you can get. It's the fundamental design of what the product is. And saying, as you're pointing out, you know, a, a beverage with one or two teaspoons of sugar should be the normal beverage, to me, was just an obvious fact supported by theory. Now, here's the next problem. You've decided that you've got this great idea, but how should you implement it? And I was stuck there for 10 years without knowing how to proceed because I had thought about mixing orange juice and club soda. So half orange juice, half club soda has half, half the cost, half the calories of our OJ. Uh, you could sort of have a totally natural organic soda. But even if I succeeded, what would happen? Coke and Pepsi with Tropicana and Minute Maid would copy me. I'd be test marketing for them. And then you wouldn't have me on the smart people show. You'd have me on the bitter people show. <laughs> uh, and so the trick is to find this beverage with one or two teaspoons of sugar that wouldn't immediately be copied or become test marketing for someone else. And so the extra insight uh, was that tea was the right place to bring out that low sugar product. And that took 10 years, you're saying, to figure Which, out? Uh, it took really luck. Uh, I ended up going to India to write a case study on Tata tea. And in the process, discovered that tea is one of the world's cheapest luxuries. For five cents, you can get a fantastic cup of tea. And moreover, without being a tea connoisseur or a tea snob, I could tell great tea from bad tea. And so if I, without any experience, could tell good tea from bad tea, and good tea only costs a nickel a cup, what's the conclusion to that? It's an easy business model now. I'd say yes, and I'd say there's no excuse to drink bad tea. And so now uh, we had the product, the, and Starbucks had shown that you could go and help people appreciate a better cup of coffee. But no one had done for, uh, for tea what Starbucks had done for coffee. So you've got the world's healthiest food with antioxidants and flavonoids in it. You have something with great culture associated with it, uh, lots of variety. And it had a, you have a social mission connected to it, which is to the extent you can get people drinking more green tea, you are improving the nation's health. And I couldn't agree with you more, especially on the benefits of tea. Along with that social mission aspect, as everybody knows, Honest Tea is kind of founded on these honest beliefs. Where did that come into the equation? At what point did you determine it's going to be called Honest Tea? Well, as part of my trip to India, 
I had a chance to meet with the folks at Tata Tea, and they want to export more tea from India. Now, today, a lot of people know about Tata. There's the Tata Nano. They, they own Jaguar. They own Land Rover. But 18 years ago, or 15 years ago, nobody outside of India had really heard of, of Tata. And so I proposed that they pick a name based on what they stood for. And they're a company with great integrity and trustworthiness. And so I proposed they call themselves Honesty. I made that proposal to a gentleman who was then the CEO uh, who said, no, he liked the Tata name. And I said, well, I guess I understand, Mr. Tata. It's your name, so I can see why you want to use it. Uh, in which case, I'll keep the honest name. And so it came up completely accidentally. Uh, we went to trademark honesty, and the way we first tried to spell it was H-O-N-E-S-T-E-A. And it turns out that's Ho-Nesty. Uh, and so Nesty blocked it, but that led to an extra T and extra space, Honest Space T, which was a better name. That was our starting point. It was obvious from there what the mission of the company was going to be in terms of... Absolutely. Gotcha. I know that fairly recently, you guys sold it to Coca-Cola and... I would love to, to be a fly on the wall when all those conversations went down. Was that a tough decision or was it basically, you know, let's do this? I think we weren't ready in the sense that we were having lots of fun, that uh, we were at that point the number one tea in every region of the country at Whole Foods and natural foods. And we were growing faster in the category in every region. Our ambition was to get to a billion dollars in sales. And we figured that that's only so much we can do on our own. Uh, without getting, we didn't want to rebuild a distribution channel. And so we certainly wanted to bring it up to $100 million and we weren't there. But Coke and Nestle had a partnership called Nestle, and that partnership dissolved because it wasn't working. And at that point, both Coke and Nestle decided that they had a whole new portfolio, which is a tea company. We were their first choice of both companies, but they also told us that if we didn't sell to them, they were going to buy somebody else. And so the question is, did we really want to be competing against both Coke and Nestle? And that is not something we really signed up for. Plus, it turned out Nestle ended up buying two tea companies, uh, not just one. So we would have been competing against three others. We did have an opportunity to work something out where we could maintain control for three years and really continue to grow it to a size that we thought was more appropriate before handing over the reins. And Seth is still the TEO. He's still in charge. The company's still based in Bethesda. So all is well. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things initially people are like, oh, but they sold out to Coca-Cola. And then when you read about it, you realize it's just a way of distributing a great product much more efficiently. And But you, you kept the same values. So I yeah. think there's no harm in that. Sure. So our uh, when we started out with Coke, not everything was fair trade. Now every tea is fair trade. We've gone from buying 500 1,000 pounds of organic ingredients to 5 million pounds of organic ingredients. And other things, the cost of our bottles was 19 cents each. Now it's 11 cents each. And 100 million bottles, that's $8 million a year. That allows us to keep prices down. And so we want the drink to be affordable. We want to be the first mainstream organic product out there. So you don't have to pay a premium. I love it. I love it. So do you think Coca-Cola gets a bad rap? I'm, you know... Okay. People have different views about them, uh, <laughs> but I like the fact that uh, we're helping them provide healthy, organic products that people love. Agreed. I, I'd imagine that that sale was a life changer. 
And yes. from yeah. from you somebody have to imagine that it's true. <laughs> from somebody, you know, with your background and all the education you have, I'm sure this was something you thought about. How did that sale and really that cash infusion, if you will, how did that change your life? Have you looked at things differently since then? I like to say the following it's that you know, I, I now have opportunity to do whatever it is that I want to do with my life. I'm in the same home. I'm with the same wife, uh, same kids, doing the same job. And so the most fortunate thing in the world is to realize that what you're doing is exactly what you want to be doing. That's uh, a great privilege. And so uh, the two changes, as I talk about in the book, I cleaned up my office, which actually took three years. So it wasn't a, uh, you can now see the carpet very well. <laughs> And I lost uh, 43 pounds, which uh, probably should have done too a long time ago. Hey, that's great. Congratulations on that. And you mentioned the book, and I, I want to kind of jump into that. So the book that just came out, Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. What is the guide to succeeding in business? With all your background, now this big, you know, honest tea under your belt, what kind of advice do you give your students, say? Starting point is, that when you go as an entrepreneur, your product has to be radically different and better. Your cost is going to be worse. Your brand name is going to be worse. Your distribution is going to be worse. Your manufacturing is going to be worse. Your quality control is going to be worse. So there better be something that is so special and wonderful about your product that people will be willing to forgive all of your other flaws. In our case, we were radically different in terms of the sugar dimension. So it would have been much harder to go in with 17 calories if somebody else was at 25 or 30. But if the other guys are at 120, then 17 is really different. That's the, the first point. Don't just make small improvements. Go for huge changes. You know, that goes against a lot of what people hear in terms of, look, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to be completely different because that's difficult. Maybe you just take something that exists and tweak it slightly. And I think you're kind of advising against that. Uh, I am indeed. Let's put it this way. What can you think of as an entrepreneurial company that has succeeded by just doing a small tweak? Facebook? Nope, that wasn't a small tweak. Or Google or Apple or Greek yogurt in that sense wasn't a small tweak either. Really, it's a fundamental different taste of uh, protein and, uh, and consistency. So I, I don't know. Can you think of any cases of uh, tweakers who have really made a difference? No. And, and you're right. I think the key is that have made a difference. I mean, if your goal is to just start a company and make a living, which there's nothing wrong with that. No, I, I call it a job as opposed to a company. Ex okay. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And, it's, and there are a lot of businesses which provide employment for the person who is the entrepreneur. But when they're gone, there's nothing they could sell. There's nothing really that will last. Here, the question is, what is the leverage? Because if you can't get leverage from what you're doing, you haven't created a real business. Thinking about creating that business then, and I know you touch on this in your teachings, how do you innovate in a way that leads to that discovery? I mean, how do you come up with these ideas? I'd say that if you're going around trying to find the random idea, I don't know, that's a, that's a little bit of a challenge as opposed to saying, what are the things that could really make my life different and better? What, what are the problems that I have? So we have this fable of the princess and the pea. And I think the moral is supposed to be get over it. Find another position so the pea doesn't bother you. But I'd say what are the places that we really can make a difference? Uh, what are the peas that, are, that aren't right in, the, in this world? To give you one example of another innovation that I've been involved with, look at the risks that people face in their life. 
And one is that the value of houses uh, might go down. So we insure people against losing their cell phone or we insure them against their car being stolen or their house being broken into. But one of the biggest risks is that uh, they will buy a house and the house won't uh, be worth what it was. So why can't you get insurance against that? So look at the problems that can really mess people up and say, how do we go and solve that? What do you find is the number one difficulty, even when you have that idea? Because everybody listening to this podcast, I guarantee you goes, I have an idea. It's great. Mm -hmm. What's the first step? I mean, what? because people just don't do it. Well, by the way, I think most people shouldn't do it. Uh, the reality is that you'll have sleepless nights. You'll have people who take your money. You'll be putting your, your cousins, your sisters, your parents, your uh, savings on the line. Uh, that can make for some awkward Thanksgivings. So un unless you have an amazing amount of passion to do this, uh, you shouldn't proceed. One of the things that I love about Seth is when he was my student, he won a business plan competition for a product to put urinary tract infection detectors inside diapers. And I think it's a great product. It becomes, it turns a diaper into a medical device. Who knows, you could get Medicare uh, just, uh, reimbursement for this. But it wasn't that he had a passion to be the diaper king. <laughs> and unless you really care about what it is that you're doing, uh, don't do it because the risks are really high and they're going to be dark days. Uh, we had challenges with glass and bottles. We had challenges of having to fire people whose lives were not where they needed to be when we let them go. It's difficult. It's painful. So there had better be some overriding, overpowering reason uh, to keep you going. That actually is advice that I think is true and is not spoken often enough. I mean, people just tend to look at the big bucks at the end and, you know, Fast Company or Inc. Magazine highlights the people that have made it and they don't ever highlight the failures. Well, I think one of the things you will see from our story uh, there were a lot of, you know, say ups and downs. There were a lot of downs, more downs than ups along the way. So we knew we were doing something right from the customer's perspective. But, oh, my God, in terms of the various challenges, everything from uh, the car that turns over and almost kills Seth to the glass in the bottles that means people don't get their first vacation in three years and takes a million dollars out of our company to uh, the time we tried to raise money. And then it was September 11th. And Nobody was interested in funding a, a tea business at, at that point to mold that was shaped into a part of the male anatomy that uh, almost put our bottling plant under. <laughs> uh, you can't possibly anticipate all the things that are going to go wrong, but you'll find out afterwards. So uh, getting a sense of just the long haul, the marathon aspect of it is something I, I think we are able to communicate. Most business books, I think, take the view we had this idea then a miracle happened and Google bought us. And uh, we emphasize all the steps the, that took place along the way. What actually made it so that you specifically, you and Seth, could withstand all this adversity? Well, one, Seth is just Mr. Optimist. Uh, he always believed that we could get through it. And he and I read every email, uh, or at least for the first 10 years, we did an answer to everyone. And the experience we were getting from customers such as yourself in terms of they got it. They understood what we were doing and why we were doing it. They loved the product. And that allowed us to appreciate that if we could actually get it to the market and get keep the quality high, people would buy it. 
I just want to touch on your book again, Mission in a Bottle. It's done a little differently, right? It's it's not the standard. It's not written in the standard way. What was the so, reason? So you behind mean that? that it's in a comic book form? Yeah, yeah that's what I was for, dancing for, around <laughs> for starters. Yeah, exactly that one. I think if you one of the things in life, I'd say to any entrepreneur, is go to where the market is, uh, as opposed to try and change the market. And these days, the people read graphic novels, graphic nonfiction, comics. And uh, if you want to attract a younger audience, this is the, the format in which people are looking for. It also allows you to present in the first person like we're doing now. And it's a more natural way, I think, of reading. And graphic presentations stick with people. They, people remember it better, uh, as evidenced by your ability to recall all sorts of different stories that we have in the book. It allows us to take trips to the Yale classroom so you don't have to spend $100,000 on an MBA. You can go and see some of the case studies. And when I say see them, I really mean you'll experience them. You'll be as if you were there. And it forces us to be terse. You know, you can go on and on, but in a, like we're, perhaps like I'm doing now, but in the book, I'm limited to 20 words at a time in a bubble. Who came up with that idea? This was Seth's uh, brainchild. And uh, he just fell in love reading graphic novels with his kids. It's really cool. It is. It's an interesting layout, and I love it. I I just love the how different it is, and specifically, like you said, I'm really into storytelling these days, and it resonates in your mind because it's a story. It's a visual story as well as accompanied with great insight. Well, thank you. I know that we're getting close to running out of time, and there's three questions I like to ask at the end of the interviews, kind of like a lightning round. The first one is, what is the last great book that you read? I guess I'm currently reading and just absolutely loving Caro's biography of Johnson. And I think it's the uh, most recent one, uh, Path to Power. And you truly appreciate the ability of Johnson to make deals happen in terms of how he passed the civil rights legislation, uh, which would have seemed totally unpassable in any other uh, world. So uh, it's a long book, but it is beautifully written and uh, absolutely inspiring. I'll have to check that one out. That actually sounds really interesting. What is the best advice you have for the intellectually curious? Don't let people uh, who aren't curious knock you down or beat you up. That is a precious gift that you had better uh, hold on to uh, dearly. And uh, don't keep your ideas all to yourself. I think a lot of people fear the fact that they, uh, if they tell somebody they're going to steal your idea. I, before we did Honest Tea, I shared the idea with the CEO of Pepsi, Indra Nui, and couldn't convince her to do it. And that actually gave me some confidence that even when she saw the product in the market, she wasn't going to copy us. So even when you have a great idea, trying to convince people uh, that it's a great idea is hard enough. I'd say the fact is that people are going to know what you do when it's in the market. That six months or three months difference isn't going to make a difference. Meanwhile, the feedback you'll get from sharing your idea with your friends, your family, with your colleagues can help you from making a lot of mistakes right up front. Great advice, because I think people too often try to guard their intellectual property, if you will. And it's just not, I don't know, maybe this is a personal opinion. It's not something you need to guard anymore. Everything's out there for the most part anyways. It's going to be out there when the product's out there. So it's a three-month difference. And if you think you're in such a crazy race, okay. (laughs) I don't think most products are going to be in that category. Meanwhile, you can really learn a lot by telling everybody about your idea. And the last one is what app, tool, or process, doesn't have to be technological, are you using these days that is making your life better? 
well, I'm using Skype apparently. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, I'd say the the <laughs> it's a uh, an unpaid, sadly, endorsement. But the Neptune Swim P3 player is really making my life better. I love swimming, but I can't stand the boredom, the tedium of it. And so being able to listen to podcasts such as yours while I'm swimming is just a godsend. It allows me to spend a whole lot more time doing it and takes away the tedium from the swimming. So if you're a multitasker, the ability to listen to uh, music or podcasts uh, while underwater without getting electrocuted is a, uh, a total winner. I love that. I take, I mean, I don't, I'm not a swimmer, but I do jog and lift and all that good stuff. And I take my podcast with me everywhere. Luckily on my iPhone. So if you're a swimmer or in the water, that sounds great. And we'll put a link to, to that and all of your recommendations up on the blog post. Barry, thank you so much for being on the show. Congratulations on all your success. And really just thank you for creating Honesty because I'm not kidding. I'm not just saying this because you're a guest. I was waiting for a similar product. I wish I would have come out with it first, but you know. <laughs> well, that's that, by the way, is a key point. Don't worry about uh, your idea being so original. Uh, I'm sure that I wasn't the first, I know I wasn't the first person to have thought about it. And that will be true for most things. So the question is, why are you the right person to do it? And thank you for creating this Smart People podcast. Definitely. And Mission in a Bottle, The Honest Guide to Doing Business Differently and Succeeding. Great book, tells a lot of the background that we touched on today goes into more detail, and you can find that. We'll put a link on Smart People Podcast. Barry, is there anywhere else that you would like to direct our listeners? If they go to uh, missioninabottle.net, so basically the name of the book, .net, there's a one-minute trailer we've made about the book, which is kind of fun. And you can also see that, I guess, at Amazon as well. And you can download a sample chapter at missioninabottle.net and uh, enjoy Now that the show's over, please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and click on the Amazon banner. Remember, Amazon is an easy way for you guys to support the show. It really helps us out. It really, besides some of these sponsorships that we get, is the thing that keeps filling our pockets with money to run the show. I mean, yeah, fill, filling that yeah, is well, full of six percent <laughs> commissions. But no, it really does help the show, guys. Every time you go over there, it doesn't it doesn't do anything out of the way for you. You just do your shopping like normal, throw everything in your cart and purchase like you normally would. And we get a like Chris mentioned, a small percentage. But it does help the show grow. It helps us get equipment. It helps us send yeah, out. I'm sure they get what it helps us do. Great things. Yeah. It helps well, with things. It helps out with all kinds of stuff. And thanks for all the feedback. I mean, it's cool hearing from you guys, whether it be we get emails, uh, the survey. It's fun. This is a fun show. And as you guys, I mean, I hope you agree that I had fun doing the interview this week. Really smart guy. You know, you get on the phone and you just learn that some of the nuggets, some of the words of wisdom that we are privy to is um, is really interesting. It helps in my personal growth. What we hope is that it helps in everybody's. You know, if it adds a little knowledge on your on your drive or your bike or your walk or while you're supposed to be working, you know, it's a good time. So we're bringing on great guests. We got another huge one coming up next week. Really fun and continuing to move forward. So I, I got nothing else. Thanks for listening. John, you got, you got to sign off here. Yeah, be paying attention for some big news on the job front pretty soon. Oh, Johnny. Oh, yeah. I saw his... Hey, guys. I saw it. Next week. <laughs>